0: Welcome to season three of the Change the World podcast. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. As CEO of 14 Minds, a marketing agency that works exclusively with Jewish nonprofits, I am a firsthand witness to the incredible physical, spiritual, and emotional services these organizations provide to our community. However, I also see the many challenges they face along the way. This season, I'll be speaking to incredible nonprofit leaders who haven't let any obstacles get in the way of their mission to change the world. Hi everybody, thanks for joining today. I'm really, really excited because pretty much since I started doing this podcast, everyone kept saying you have to interview Saripa Kong. You, you have to. Like she is just your next guest. And it took a while, but we finally made it happen. So Saripta, thank you. I'm so excited to finally be doing this.
1: The privilege is mine. Thank
0: you. So, to introduce you formally, Sarah Facone is the founder and the director of Ziesel's Links, Schlemie's Clubs, and Little Links of Pearl. So, I'm going to let you introduce yourself um, in a little bit more depth. Tell us about those organizations, how it came to be. Give us the whole
1: background. So, in 2006, I started what I thought was a magazine, not an organization, called Links for teenage girls who lost a parent. I had lost my mother when I was nine, and it's a long story of how, but I had. Thanked Miriam Lieberman for writing her book saying goodbye. And she actually said to me, why don't you start a publication for teenagers who lost a parent? And I said, oh, that I could do without realizing what I was getting myself into. I was teaching at the time. This was kind of a side, a side thing that I was doing in my pantry, like legit took a shelf out, put a computer in there and sat in there. We started as a publication. Then I put a little ad in that publication that said, if you want to meet up in person, here's my address, this date, this time, whoever wants to come, come, which was pretty crazy. But in 2007, we did some crazy things. And seven girls showed up. And they actually asked for a weekend for a Shabbaton. And that's how literally that got started. And then from there, it sort of evolved into events and a whole bunch of other services. In 2012, Mimi Gross lost her husband, Shlomi Gross. And she had an 11-year-old son, and she came to me, and she said, you know, why is there, why are there only services for girls? Why not for boys who lost a parent?" And I said, because I'm missing a partner, and I need a partner on this. And so Mimi Gross became a full-fledged partner and named Shlami's Club our boys' division after her husband, Shlami Gross. And in 2017, I met with Reb Mordechai Elvashelm and his wife, Yabela Chaim Taibim um, Meryl Eisenberg, such special people, and they wanted to found something for little girls because at the time we were still dealing only with teen girls in our girls division. Our boys was dealing already with elementary and high school. And so they named it Little Links of Pearls in memory of Mrs. Eisenberg's mother, Pearl Benish. So that's sort of why we have those clunky three names going. And then actually in March of last year, 2022, yeah, um, of this year, we renamed Links to Cecil's Links in memory of Mrs. Susan Mann. And that was... An incredible privilege as well. So sometimes when people hear it, they're like, oh, is it three different organizations? No, it's one umbrella organization that has three divisions to it the girls, the boys, and the little girls. So that's in a nutshell. And what we do is we service kids and teens who lost a parent all over the United States, Canada, Europe, and English speakers in Israel to different degrees.
0: Wow, that that's a great story. I love hearing how people kind of fell in being um in running a nonprofit. Everybody's stories is so fascinating. So as I guess you're the director, what does your day-to-day look like? What do you what are you normally doing?
1: So just to take people back, so at the time like I said when I founded it, I was teaching. Then I moved on from teaching. I went actually I was working for Bina and Hamodia as their features editor and then I was doing their sales liaison and through that I actually wound up doing some marketing for the city hospitals, and all this stuff was happening while my organization was growing on the side. So I had somebody working for me, and I was sort of like the, I'll pick up the phone and answer a question, and obviously I'll run an event, but very much like sideline. In 2016, I think it was, I jumped ship and I said, okay, there's no way, this organization needs to scale, and it needs me in the office full-time. And kind of that's where I transitioned. At the time, actually, the person who was working for me left to be a stay-at-home mom, and she came back a couple years later back into the office. But at the time, what ended up happening was that I was actually the only one in the office. So I did a little bit of everything, and I always say that that's the greatest piece that I have now in the directorship role, is that I've pretty much failed at almost everything that everybody's doing. So there's something I can teach everybody, hopefully, about what they're doing. But I have to say that what my day-to-day looks like is actually my dream job. I'm a starter. I hate finishing things. I hate tedious details. I'm a creative in every sense of the word. I like to dream up ideas, and then I like to hand them to somebody else. I'm not a micromanager. I like to hire well and let people do a much better job than I can. So my day-to-day is dreaming of possibilities and of where we should be headed to next and where we should actually be possibly cutting. And we'll close that. We'll talk about that, about the angst that it is, but sometimes looking at a program that worked well for 10 years, but it's not relevant anymore. And shutting that and opening the doors to something else. So kind of a good portion of my day, I would say, is like really you know looking at how everybody's stuff is coming together. Obviously working with the office team, we now have a team of 12, And then in addition to that, I would say the bulk of my day is fundraising. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't even say it's the bulk of every day. I would get more organized and say, I'm hoping that this year it will be as I'll set aside a couple hours of fundraising, a couple hours for the fun stuff, but it's on my head and on my mind. Ultimately, I carry a two and a half million dollar budget close to three, actually. And it rests on my shoulders. And so that is definitely taking up a whole bunch of the headspace at the same time that I look at an organization much more holistically and much more from a big picture and saying, you know, kind of where do we want to take this? What do we want to do? What's going right and what's going wrong?
0: I love what you're saying about that you like to start things that I think we have a lot in common because that's for people like us, I think that's the easy part. And then we get kind of lost in the details. So having the right people to delegate, I think is really, really important. So, I mean, it's amazing how much you've grown. Looking back, um, are there any kind of surprising challenges that the you who started this organization would have just not
1: anticipated at all? Every single thing. I had an opportunity to join in 2018 the UJA a Leadership Group, which you may be familiar with, which is basically a UJA pro partnership run by Cindy Darrison, who is amazing. And basically the idea was to put women who run from nonprofits in one room as a cohort to learn. And I remember when I spoke at the graduation, one of the things I said to them was, you know, in the general world, when somebody starts a nonprofit, they typically have a background in nonprofit management or something of that sort. Here, I wasn't planning to start a nonprofit and the nonprofit grew on me. And so everything was brand new. It was like, what did I know about hiring, about filings, about marketing? I I knew nothing about anything and everything was a matter of trial and error and hopefully more trial than error. But um, it really is a lot, a lot, a lot of learning. And I think one thing I will say to my credit, if I will, is that I've never been afraid of learning. And I love to learn. I love to seek out good, strong people who can teach me. And I'm here for it. So it never scared me, so to speak. And sometimes stupidly so, because I'll look back at certain things I undertook and I had no skill set for it. And I'm like, what did I think I was doing? But ultimately, you know, I've been blessed, I always say this, to be surrounded by really good people and to learn from them and really to try to do my best to lean into whatever it is that they're offering on every level. And then through that kind of, I grew into everything that we've been able to do. Now, I'll just give you a perfect example of that right now. So we actually had a crazy opportunity several months ago where somebody gifted us with something, an incredible amount of money and and said we should invest it in Something that would be a dream of something that was a dream of mine, which was developing a, a center of sorts for our art and music groups and for our support groups, as well as sort of a library drop in center, particularly geared to younger kids. Meaning, to say, yes, the teens and researchers will have their hours as well. And there are a lot of very young widows who are left with a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a nine-year-old, and just, they can't get anything done. Or, you know, widowers who are looking to go out and do something with their son who's having a bar mitzvah, and they, they just, they need a space for their kids to be, and to be able to have that downtime. I will say this publicly, I rent my own apartment for the last 20 odd years. I have never bought a property, let alone buying it from a nonprofit perspective it was an insane process. It wound up, it was supposed to take six weeks. Because it was about nine months to even just close it. And Baruch Hashem, we're opening it in September, which is pretty wow. incredible. We closed in March and we're opening it in September. Anyway, but point being is that when I look at it now, I'm like, why did I say yes to any of this? What was I thinking? But you know what? I went into it. And the crazy part is that when I was announcing that we're opening this, I said, this is going to be the first of several centers. And my staff said, what, what was it that you just said? And I said, because now that I'm seeing what's happening here, we have to replicate this in other places. They, they say that the worst words in the office are when Sarifka walks into the office and she says, I have an idea, you die.
0: <laughs> I love it.
1: I uh, love it. Yeah. But exactly that. I think that we can't be, obviously there's a certain amount of, should I say, calculated risk, especially when you're dealing with the public's money. You need to be super careful, both legally and halachically. We can do anything that would be too risky, but there's got to be a certain amount of risk that we take in order to grow.
0: For sure. So I want to go back to what you mentioned about, you know, being a firm woman in the nonprofit space, which I think you and I both know is kind of unusual. I mean, it's a field in our community that's really, really dominated by men. So I'm, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that experience has been like for you.
1: So it's very interesting. I'm doing this since 2006. So, what is that now? 16 years. It's changed. I will say that right now, let's say the UJA Chesed Leadership Group has all of their alumni on one chat. We're almost 80 women in leadership positions in from Chesed organizations. And I think when people hear that number, it's surprising as to how many of the decision making parties, whether it's directorship or COOs or CFOs in these organizations, are Definitely beginning to see many more women, but certainly when I started out, it was an enigma to many people. It was like the women did the volunteering and maybe even a lot of the hands-on work, but I'll tell you where it was definitely a very big shift for a lot of people was the directorship and certainly the fundraising. And I still get that. When I meet with people, they'll say, okay, so who does your fundraising? And I'll point to myself and Mimi Gross, my partner, and say, you know, we we do this, we do this together. And they're like, right, but who else? And what they're really meaning is, don't you have any men on the team who are carrying this for you? And I am blessed is that my staff is mixed of men and women. My rabbinical board obviously is made up of rabbinim of men, but in terms of the actual financial piece, no, that rests on the shoulders of of two women. And it's definitely something that is challenging on two fronts. Number one is, and um, I I say this with every measure of respect and comfortability, when you're going to shul on Shabbos morning and you want to really target a particular donor or you want to fill him in on something that happened, all you need to do is stay 15 minutes after davening and make sure that you find him during the Kiddush and say, by the way, I got to tell you about this crazy thing that we did this week, right? And you have his attention, That is challenging as a woman because the opportunities for that are far and few between. Case in point, I was this morning in a grocery store and as I'm pushing my wagon down the aisle, I see a donor who I don't have much um, face-to-face contact with. He's one of these donors who I communicate 90% of the time by email. We met once about four years ago and his donations go this way ever since. It's, It's not like he wants to meet up and stuff like that. And I had this inner battle inside of me. Like, do I pull over my wagon and go over and reintroduce myself and kind of fill him in? Do we pass each other like two ships in the night? And I checked in with myself for a second and I said, what felt right for me and what was appropriate for him? And obviously with different donors, this would mean different things, but it felt right to pass up the opportunity. I felt right is that there's a nature to the boundaries of our relationship that I needed to respect on both fronts. And You know, it was one of those things that I said just wouldn't happen to men in the field. And I know that I'm limited in that capacity. Having said that, it fascinates people and it boggles their minds that Baruch Hashem, we have managed to raise larger sums of money than people thought we would be able to. Roughly a $2 million budget is pretty fascinating to a lot of people. And certainly going into the threes and Amartya Hashem, it will grow. It's not that it can't be done. And it needs to be done with finesse, and it needs to be done creatively. And I guess as a creative, a problem doesn't scare me. A problem is a challenge to look at and say, well, how am I going to do this different? What's going to be another way that I can speak? And I'll I'll tell you, let's say that for me, that's what created my month in reviews. So we have something we call our month in review, which is mostly pictorial very few words, and I don't ever put pictures of kids or teens that we service, so the pictures are genuinely creative, whether it's a package that was sent out or whether it's of an event set up, but the idea is obviously to give our larger donors an idea of what's happening within the organization, and our month reviews get such incredible feedback. In fact, I tracked at some point is that we send our monthly reviews, the best open rate is on Thursday night for men for me and again I know everybody's donor base is different for me what I find is that the men are definitely on a path of like unwinding so to speak out of the grind and so they'll take an opportunity to open a whatsapp or open an email that I send them at a much higher rate so I've I've learned to send them on Thursday nights but anyway I have built such magnificent relationships that way in a funny way that just challenged me I use whatsapp status like crazy We'll talk about that a little bit more if you want. But I am a big social media person, obviously with a tremendous amount of boundaries and a tremendous amount of thought. But I know that I have my donors who will watch my status much more so than my Instagram and LinkedIn, although those have their own target audiences. And so I reach them in different ways and I connect with them in different ways. And we connect on a different level, on a level that is very much, I'm I'm not, in a schmoozy relationship. I'm not in, it's a different, a completely different relationship and a somewhat more focused one. And so I think they know that they get a lot of realness. I I tell it like it is. I say what I need. I explain what we're doing. And I, I genuinely feel a privilege to have gotten to know every single one of my donors. They are incredible human beings. I don't know if God would have blessed me with this kind of money if I would have, so to speak, been as generous as some of my donors are with me. I, I genuinely feel they're the most incredible people in the world, and I think that they know that I genuinely feel that way. And so I, I guess that the relationship is challenging the donor relationship, but it's just about getting really much more creative about how am I going to um Both attract that donor and how am I also going to continue the relationships? And I'll be the first one to say that sometimes to open doors, you know, Mimi Gross and I have a a line that goes on between us is that she'll open a lot of doors and I stick my foot in and don't let the door close. So I will sometimes enlist some of my donors to bring on a friend or something like that. So where they'll open a door and say, could you just meet this person? And then my job is obviously to present and to try to bring them on as partners in our opportunities. So it's not like I'm saying, oh, we're, we're like, I can do this all on my own and stuff like that. No, I'll be the first one to say that's not possible. But I think that it's possible to do it in a way that is effective.
0: Wow. I love all of that. So I think you've touched a little bit upon this, but I, I'd love to go into more detail because I think a lot of people would find it really, really relevant when you say that you're a creative and you're not afraid of a problem. So the problem, or let's reframe it as the challenge of being a woman, building up a nonprofit in a space that's really dominated by men. What have you, Can you give us like more detailed examples of what have been some of the creative solutions you've applied?
1: Yeah, I've had to create opportunities. I guess not even create opportunities. I've had to say is that our, I've had to strategize of how the meetings are going to go. Because they're not of the schmoozy nature, right? And so sometimes it's about thinking much more into how am I going to present what it is that we do in a way that is attractive, in a way that tells the story well. And I've had to fine tune that a lot because I don't get those five minutes of like, oh my goodness, I saw you in school last week, or we met at this wedding, right? And where I don't even get to touch base from that point. So it's, it's coming much more from like, how do I walk in and kind of start a pitch, but in a delicate way. I also will say something else is that men and women have different strengths. I think that one of the things that has always been um, something that Akash Barucho gifted me with is the creative energy to think of a different solution. So when I'm sitting with a donor who I see, the direction of the pitch that I wanted, right? Let's say I thought, oh, it would be great for him to sponsor our Yantef gift cards, right? But I see, I'm not seeing light in his eyes. I'm studying how he's reacting to what I'm presenting. And it's, it's bouncing right off, right? That's an intuitive gift that women have, is to be able to read that. And I can switch gears so fast. It doesn't matter that that's what I came in wanting. Now it's like, what speaks to you? And sometimes I'll even just ask that question of, I'm just curious out of all the things that I just shared with you that we do, what is it that spoke to you most? And I listen and I really listen. And then based off of that, I can switch gears at that point. So I think that that's our strength as women. And I I think any woman who's in the fundraising world can say this is that if you don't lean into your abilities that you have and you focus on the opportunities that are closed to you and stuff like that, not only are people bitter, but they're also losing golden opportunities that don't exist. And I think that there's something about that that's very intriguing and more than intriguing, it's it's very, it's solution-based. It's, we want to get what we want to get done and we're going to come up with something to make that happen, right? So a perfect example of this was that I had a donor, like I said, who I went in and I thought would be a perfect partner for our of gift cards. I saw no go by the questions he was asking. I could see it wasn't inspiring something within him. And he had lost a parent as a kid, which you know some of my parents, some of my donors have, some of my donors have been. And I asked him point blank. I said, if I could ask the question, I'm just curious for me. And I said, what one of my greatest challenges was. And I said, I'm just curious. What was, you would say, like probably the biggest challenge for you growing up without this parent at that age? And without giving away where the money went, I'll, I'll say that he brought up a challenge. And I said to him, you know, that that's something that we've never addressed. I said, because that's something that I know is going to cost an amount that I don't even have the capabilities of raising. And he lit up at that. And he said, really, like you would have the knowledge and the ability to pull that off. And I'm just going to make up something, which is not because I don't, like I said, I don't want to give him away. But let's say he would have said, I think that single parents need more cleaning help. I'm just Drawing that as an example. And I said, look, you know, in la site. where does it end? How often? Who do we give it to? What are the parameters? And where does the cost, how much do we want to invest in it and stuff like that? And he said, if you can figure all that out and come with me a proposal as to how you could do it, I'll get a couple of partners in and we'll do this. And he was good on his word. But what that took was switching gears in the middle and saying, I'm gonna use the ability that I have to listen. I'm going to use my ability to read people and to say, let me lean in on what's the experience like for you and where do you want to go? Because I'm a huge believer is that I'm offering an investment. And it took me years to come to this. You know, I used to feel like I walked into people and I won't say that there still aren't days that I feel this way is where I'll walk into a prospective donor and I feel like he's doing me or she's doing me world's greatest favor and therefore it kind of makes you feel like nothing when you're I always say Rosh Hashanah when we say like a poor man who knocks at the door I can tell you that my heart when I knock at the door for the last 15 years is like this it's pounding like crazy when I knock on that donor's door and I'm waiting in those three seconds for the person to open it I'm just petrified And it has never gone away. Like people say, you know, I never lost stage fright. I never lost this fear. But what's gotten much better over the years is that I've begun to recognize is that what we have to offer is an opportunity. It's not for everyone. For some people, the opportunity will be to build a building for a yeshiva. For some people, the opportunity will be to do something else. And for some people, the opportunity that they're going to cash in on is the opportunity to partner with us and help kids and teens who lost a parent. And all of a sudden, I realized I'm like an investment banker. I'm coming to you with something that I know. It's a piece of land that I've seen. You could do really well on this investment. And sometimes people will say, not for me right now, right? Or no, I want to invest in something totally different. Great. That doesn't mean the person is less than or anything. There's a different opportunity that right now is open to them, but it's an opportunity, and I owe it to people to share with them what the opportunities are to invest. So that's that's kind of going to shift in my mind a lot more.
0: That's really, I think, and for anyone who's in the fundraising space to make that shift of thinking about, well, you know, here's what I'm bringing to the donor, take it or leave it, and to turn that around into what would be an investment for them and what would be meaningful for them. That's really transformational. So I think that's something a lot, a lot of people in this space would really, really appreciate and should learn from because I've never really thought of it quite that way. It does have, it does have kind of like a mirroring to the way we do marketing on a broader space, is right. You we want to learn about the audience and we want to market that to them in a way that we think that they'll respond to. And here it's like taking that on a micro level on a one-on-one and it's so much more powerful when it's done that way. So
1: I'm going to tell you, I took it one step further. It was actually an idea of, it was a a combination idea of myself and and Daniel at Dinesh who runs our legally links division. But he came up, we came up with this idea of opening a a WhatsApp group. It's an admin only group and it's called opportunities. And there are things that we can't cover, right? Because there's that one off, right? whatever it is that this person needs right now. And I can't offer this as a service for everybody that I'll always cover XYZ. But we really would like to help these people. And it was getting to me that we were saying no to so many of these things. And then I realized there are people who, who really would like to feel connected to a particular opportunity, right? I don't want to just donate to the organization. I want to donate to an individual. So with almost no details. We post, we call it an opportunity number, right? We say, let's say opportunity. We're up to, I think now opportunity number, let's say 27 was the opportunity number 27. What is it? So we just had now somebody who needed funds for a flight. It was two siblings who were separated because of the loss on two different continents. And one of them was getting married and it was extremely important for the other one to fly in, especially given the circumstances. And there were no funds to fly this sibling in. So it was a young sibling. And we felt very strongly that this should be. Now, am I now starting to offer that we fly in siblings for weddings? No, that's, that would be crazy of me, right? But in this case, we felt it was really the right thing to do. So we put it on. There is that the flight will be because it was also it was crazy holiday timing and everything like that. So let's say we said it would be, I'm just making up, it would be 1700 And then what happens is you DM me with how much you want to give. So nobody sees on the chat how much anybody's giving. So like they'll DM me privately, $100. And it's almost crowdfunding on a little level where people are able to give small amounts and then we write opportunity closed. So together on this chat, we've raised now, I think it's almost $75,000 in the last few months of small opportunities. And it's been wonderful at two things. Number one is it's giving people a real opportunity to make an impact year round. Some of these were donors who are one-year donor, who are once-a-year donors. Some of these are small-time, and I say small-time in quotes only because I don't believe in such a thing as a small-time donor. I believe every single person's dollar truly makes a difference. So, But sometimes there are people who can't see why would my $20 or my $25 make a difference? But when I write that I need 10 of you to put in $50, and then we have this opportunity covered... People feel like this is something I'm engaging in, I'm involved in, I got this done. And then what also started to happen was some of our donors began to learn, what is it that you do every day? Oh my goodness, you deal with this wider range of stuff going on. That's been huge. That has been a game changer for me because again, it's just another way to reach people and tell a story.
0: I love that. and it's, a, it's I like that you're saying that it's a way to get people involved as opposed to when you make your big ask or you say, you know, donate to our operating budget for the year, it kind of loses its like appeal as in terms of giving people meaning behind their donation. So that's an incredible opportunity. Um, so you mentioned WhatsApp and you mentioned earlier social media. So I want to just go back to that and the topic of being a woman in this space. How have you found that particular challenge to affect how you operate on this space? And what have you done about it?
1: So before I started, my first, so to speak, foray into social media was on LinkedIn. I have actually a little bit slacked off of my game, but I'm getting back onto it. I I really realized that every platform has its own strengths and weaknesses, and you can't, I mean, people think that they could post the same thing on every platform. You really can't. And it's a full-time job in and of itself to come up with content for every platform that is unique to the platform and does well. So when I started my Instagram page, I thought I could still keep up my LinkedIn and I kind of slacked off on it, which wasn't awful because I needed to build that part up also. And then now I'm finally finding is that I can start to come back on both platforms. So LinkedIn really, obviously, I have the hashtag Tales of Leader. And there, I really, when I started it five years ago, I came onto there with a mission of to take away the mystique of nonprofits. Like nonprofit leadership was this thing that nobody knew anything about, very not transparent. People had a lot of cynicism around some of it. And I was just like, we're done. I'm just going to tell it like it is. And I had nobody holding me back to do it because I'm the director. So I get to tell the story the way I want to. And it was mind-blowing to people. And it was great. When I went on to Instagram, I kind of realized I was going into a different world and I wanted to set stronger boundaries for myself. I had a lot of fears and concerns around doing it and I had to build a strategy. Now, the reason I went on to Instagram was I felt that there was a lot more education that needed to happen to the broader community and that was where I was finding them. So my first, well, my goal always was is that this is an educational platform. So this is not about anything personal. This is not about my favorite flavor of ice cream. This is clearly about the work that we do, why we feel it's important and how we're going to talk about the language of trauma, the language of loss, the language of grief, the language of support around it. And that's, that's been very much what I've done. So what I did was in the beginning, I wrote something called a memo to self. I've shared it actually with some people. I wrote multiple points out for myself of what I wanted to establish. For starters. I envision social media as if I were hired to speak to a group of 5,000 people, right? People don't think of followers as real people. They are real people. This is a real audience. If you wouldn't get up and say the things you're saying or be dressed the way you're dressed in front of an audience of 5,000 people, please, by all means, don't do it on social media. And that was what I said for myself. Um, There were other boundaries that I set for myself, again, in terms of topics and how I would cover them. And these have been my strong boundaries. And I will say that Chaz De Hashem, my experience has been is that my my challenge of the boundary piece is just that I'm constantly adding new things for myself as I encounter, you know, when reels came out, it was about what kind of reels would I do? For instance, for me, and I know this isn't true for everybody, I will never use secular music with lyrics on any of my reels. It's a boundary for me, for my personal stuff, and it stands aligned with the fact that if a parent is watching my social media accounts, they should feel comfortable that the same person who's making decisions about what content is being put out is the person who's making the decision about what type of events the kids will be attending. And I think a parent has a right to be weary when an organization's standards on social media are a little bit looser than the question is, are you going to be that way when my child shows up in real life to an event? And so I really want it to be something that parents can see we're completely transparent about who we are is what we do. And so so those are boundaries that I've had to set for myself. And as a woman, definitely I felt very strongly is that there's certain boundaries that I need to I need to be mindful of. I also set up is that I have a couple of friends and some of my family members who will watch every single thing that I put out and Have given me the feedback when it's not okay for whatever reason, or when I didn't realize that I said something in a way that could be misconstrued, and I immediately take it down. But to have those safety pieces in place to ensure. Do I think it's for everyone and every nonprofit? No. Do I think that it's been a game changer for us both in outreach and in fundraising? 200%. Do I think that organizations who are using it only part time, like every time they have a campaign, then it's like a push on social media? I think that's like a waste of time and energy. Thank if you, you have no strategy about how to connect with people year round, please don't come on when you're having your annual campaign and say, you know, social media doesn't do anything. I put it up there, my link, and nobody gave to it. <laughs> and it's like, really, you, you no just want people to and 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 send influencers these messages of like, why aren't you posting about this very important campaign? Do you even know who this person is? Have you followed them? Have you built a relationship with them? It's like there's a science to this.
0: You can talk for another hour just about that topic yeah. alone. <laughs> it's uh, an endemic situation with the the auctions and the raffles and the like account, nonprofits coming out of the woodwork once a year, some big event and it's a pet peeve of mine as well. So the way you're doing it, that, that is the way to go. Yeah. So before we end off, I don't think I prepped you for this one. So I'll put you on the spot. Is there any favorite story You've been doing this, uh, you know, quite a bit of time. And is there anything that sticks out as like the moment you said, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm working so hard every day. Anything that you could share before we end off for today?
1: So I think that the reason there's no favorite story, but there's a lot of favorite moments is because I think that unfortunately for me, and and maybe this is true for some of my donors as well, stories only go to inspire you so far. And I just had this actually a couple of weeks ago when I was really struggling financially and my bank was like dipping so fast and I couldn't see how some of the grants that we had applied for and some of the bigger donations we were waiting for kept getting delayed. And I was like, this is this is going to crash real bad real soon. And not that I haven't had that, we have that every few months in a different way, right? Because fundraising never, ever, ever ends. It's not like you're, oh, wow, we did this whole thing. So now we're set for the year. And my husband said to me, well, remember your why. Why are you doing this? And he was right. And he's he's been my biggest cheerleader throughout of this piece of just, it's not just one story. It's about the fact that we're impacting lives every single day by just being there. Meaning to say, it's not about even a particular service and it's not about a particular event. It's about the fact that there is a phone number and there is an email to call. And we have a hashtag called Just Ask. And we feel free to say no. We have the boundaries where we sometimes say, this is not something we have the capability of helping with. We wish we did. Sometimes, if we can, we try to swing it off and say, we know someone else who can. But sometimes we can't even do that. Some problems are just not solvable by us. But the safety for people knowing that there is that peace. And I, I sometimes just go back and I reflect to myself in my own childhood where I didn't have that. And I was an only child. And it was kind of the loneliest experience because I imagine that nobody else in the world probably felt all those big feelings like I did, which isn't true. And which today I could say totally not true because I meet hundreds of, of kids and teens who have the same exact feelings that I had back then. But I think the safety of knowing that we're able to gift them that is is something tremendous and has definitely given me the push every time I feel like I don't know if I made the biggest mistake in my life by saying <laughs> yes. yes. But sometimes I look at it and I'm like, would I trade this for anything? I've I've worked so many careers in my life and I really had an amazing ride in every single one of them. But there's nothing, nothing like the, I guess the peace of mind that I have of sitting and knowing that this is something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put me particular challenges to be able to do this and to be able to give this to people. It's just something that I feel privileged to do.
0: Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that with us. If anybody is listening and wants to reach out, volunteer, donate, ask for help, where should they go?
1: On Instagram, we're at links underscore shlamies club and our phone number is 718-305-6080.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much again. This was absolutely fantastic. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tzivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.